with the rest of the disciples, we have gathered tonight in the upper room. We've come to the table set before us by our rabbi, our master, Jesus. Out of the remembrance of the Passover, Yahweh's deliverance of his people from their centuries of bondage in Egypt, Jesus has given us a new meal by which we can taste grace and savor hope. The breaking of bread has been expressed as the giving of his body. Sharing the cup has been framed not only as the shedding of his blood, but as the means of our forgiveness, the covering of our guilt and shame. These elements, along with the basin and the towel by which Jesus began the evening washing our feet, ground our faith in Christ in a humble posture of sacrifice and service. In coming down to our level, in looking us square in the face, Jesus gives us practical embodiments of a new commandment, a higher law, the greatest, the supreme ethic of the kingdom of God, love. Before tonight, Jesus had declared that the summation of the Torah and the prophets was wholeheartedly loving God and out of the singularity of that devotion, loving one's neighbor as oneself. When we questioned in that moment the boundaries of our neighborhood, Jesus then told us a story, a parable that continues to challenge us when we perceive or treat anyone who is in need as a stranger or an enemy, undeserving of our time or our attention. In turning the answer of the question, who is my neighbor back on us, Jesus taught us to value, to embrace, to love everyone as our own flesh and blood as one of God's children. Where before Jesus pointed to love as the ethos of the kingdom and told us to go and do likewise, here and now tonight, Jesus shows us what kingdom love looks like. And that is why we come back to the events of the upper room again and again. We freeze the frame and reflect carefully on this scene before us because here Jesus paints a picture of what the church, his body, is supposed to look like, feel like, act like. To remember these experiences being washed clean, coming to the table, is not just to recall what happened, but rather to be continually shaped by these experiences, to let Jesus through these sacraments change our hearts, shape our minds, and transform our attitudes and actions. Through it all, Jesus is explicitly telling us, commanding us to love like that, to love as he has loved us, as he will love us still. For in this space, Jesus shares with us that something is coming, a declaration of love, a public display of affection unlike any the world has ever known. He gets specific. It will overcome the power of sin, the forces of evil, and the silence of the grave. It will unleash the gift of the Spirit and blossom into the fruit of the harvest. It will heal the broken, set free the prisoner, and satisfy those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. But Jesus goes on. Love like this will involve sacrifice. Love like that will lead to death. Love, unconditional, immeasurable, grace-infused, divine-scented love is coming, Jesus assures us. 
It is coming not by means of some sentimental valentine, but by the way, the scandal of the cross. Foolishness, we protest with the rest of the disciples. Stumbling block, we argue as they do. We, the would-be messengers of this so-called religion, Kings wear crowns of gold, not weaved of thorns. Lords are lifted up in homage. They are not handed over in condemnation. Saviors swoop in and win the day. They do not give up their last breath and die. But Jesus is unrelenting. Jesus remains undeterred in going to prepare a place for us. This is the way. This is the truth. This is the life of who he is of the love he is. As we see him, as we watch him, Jesus tells us we have seen the Father, the character, the purpose, the will, the love of God. And so love will come. Love will come in the face of repeated denial. Love will be offered even as all turn away. Such love will eclipse even the kiss of betrayal. It's all too much to handle. It's so much to take in, to process, to accept mentally, emotionally, spiritually, physically. It's all too much to take in, even we notice for Jesus. He cries out, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. And then he leads us to a place, to a garden called Gethsemane. Here, Jesus shows us how to respond when the inevitable seems impossible. How to carry on when the pressure builds, when the darkness comes and death's shadow lingers over us. In those moments where the unavoidable seems unimaginable and we are overwhelmed with grief, overcome by confusion and tempted to go our own way, Jesus teaches us what to do instead. Jesus sits at the foot of the Father and he prays. With the weight of the world on his shoulders and the possibility of another path in his line of sight, Jesus prays. Abba, Father, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. It's not a coincidence that this scene plays out in a garden. There are echoes here going all the way back to the beginning. For the story of God, the story of us starts in a garden, a garden called Eden. It was in Eden the Lord planted the seed of humanity. Out of the dirt and dust of a beautiful, bountiful, and good creation, human life took shape. Made in the image of God and filled with the Spirit of the Lord, Adam and Eve took their first breath and entered into the paradise of harmony and shalom, centered around the tree of life, life as it was meant to be. Together they were given the keys to the kingdom. Work, play, rest, enjoy, cultivate, create, care for, fill the earth, spread the love. Everything is yours save the knowledge of good and evil. Do not eat of that tree, or you will die. But they didn't listen to God. They didn't follow the instructions. 
They allowed themselves to fall into temptation, to doubt what is true, to challenge what is right, to go another way, away from God. We are no different. Like them, we ignore. Like them, we deny. Like them, we wonder if the grass is greener on the other side. We rationalize too. We rebel, and like them, we bite off more than we can chew. Their disobedience, our disobedience, has its consequences. God wasn't lying. Work suddenly becomes a chore. Beauty fades Our bodies start to break down. Forever is suddenly eclipsed by no guarantees about tomorrow. Insecurity creeps in. Relationships become stained and strained by blame and shame. Fear isolates us from our creator and from each other and even ourselves. The forces of nature all around us mirror the chaos within the human condition. We try to run and hide. We rage, rage, rage against the dying of the light, but there is no escaping the truth. We each die a thousand deaths long before the one day we are lowered back down into the dust from which we came. The tree of life is beyond our reach, the garden is lost but hope is not. For in the beginning, a promise was made. A promise was made of one who would win the war against temptation, who would bridge the divide between God and man, who would crush the evil holding us captive to rebellion, who would break the cycle of our sin and turn the tide of its consequences. Even back then, in our darkest hour, another seed was planted for another tree, for another garden. And this brings us here, to Gethsemane. Here, we are reminded that the promise given back in the beginning is true. Here, we are reminded that the promise given back in the beginning hints at that our redemption is not without cost. The seed of our salvation does not take root unless it is watered. And long ago, Israel learned the price of sin is blood. When life is taken, restoration is only possible through the giving of life. Nature's seasons reflect this cycle. The birth of spring only comes by way of the dead of winter. Jesus himself once declared it this way, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. And now, here in a garden called Gethsemane, Jesus faces the same choice Adam and Eve had that every human being has to make but ultimately messes up. Gethsemane returns humanity to the moment of decision. Once again, the age-old question is raised, will it be God's way or our way? Once again, the ultimate answer must be given. Trust and obey or doubt and rebel. It's not too much to say. The fate of the universe hung in the balance. In this decision long ago, everything fell apart. And in this decision, his decision, Jesus' decision, right here, right now, the world will be set right or else just keep spinning madly on. 
Jesus has lots of reasons to argue here, plenty of self-justifications to rebel. He has walked blamelessly before the Father. He and he alone has repelled the infection of sin. Jesus may be the only one who can swallow the poison of the snake that bit us, but Jesus is the only one who ever lived and never contributed a single drop to the cup of suffering he prepares to drink. In this sense, then, all that's wrong with this world, the injustice and the evil, the ignorance and the apathy, the violence and the hate, truly shouldn't be his cross to bear. On top of all this, are we really worth dying for? Are we really worth dying for? Jesus, as he prays, looks over his shoulder and sighs. He is in anguish before this present darkness. He's confessed the struggle of this decision before him. All he asked them to do was stay awake and keep watch. And they're asleep. Couldn't we keep watch for one hour? Jesus is handing himself over for this? For them? For us? And Jesus knows this will be just the beginning of the disappointment he will experience tonight. The flesh is willing. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. There's a snake in the grass again, and the fangs of betrayal are about to be exposed. Denial of Jesus is going to be spit out like venom. Everyone is about to slither away, and Jesus will be left alone, forsaken. Jesus knows what is coming. He knows too well how we will fold, how we will fail yet again. Jesus could have said, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, but for these sons and daughters of yours who have squandered your property with prostitutes to bring them home, you want me to be the fatted calf for them? Jesus has every reason with this decision to say, hell no. But before the very question of trusting and following God, Jesus speaks the greatest prayer ever prayed and says, heavens, yes. Not my will, but thy will be done. My friends, did you hear it? Jesus gives the answer we did not back in Eden. Jesus makes the decision we have not, we cannot make because of our bondage to sin. As Christians, we tend to focus on the death and resurrection of Jesus as the salvific moments of our faith. And while this is most certainly right and true, let us, however, acknowledge tonight the Garden of Gethsemane was the tipping point. The victory of Christ, our salvation begins here. The seed of forgiveness, grace, and love planted in Gethsemane will take root in a place called Calvary and eventually will give rise to a new garden. Another garden. Envisioned by the prophet Isaiah, later described in the revelation of John, our ultimate destiny in Christ, thanks to Jesus, is not some cloud in the heavens far above the earth. Our destiny in Christ is a garden city where heaven and earth finally and forever will become one. 
The imagery of a new Jerusalem with a life-giving river flowing down the middle of the street, surrounded by trees with leaves for the healing of the nations, promises so much more than a return back to Eden. It anticipates, through the perfect marriage of the triune God and humanity, the transformation, the eternal flourishing of creation, community, and culture. Death will come to an end. Tears of sadness will be no more. Pain will no longer exist. The sweet communion of what we but taste at this table will become an eternal feast. Forever in the presence of our Savior and our King, we will be his people and he will be our God. Martin Luther once wrote, God writes the gospel not in the Bible alone, but also on trees and in the flowers and clouds and stars. Beloved, as we press on through Holy Week, as we keep our eyes on Jesus, let us remember the gospel we inhabit is a story of three gardens. Our life, which began in a garden called Eden, but was lost due to sin, begins to be reclaimed, won back here in this garden called Gethsemane. Even as the hour comes and we prepare to follow Jesus to the cross, despite him being covered with thorns, watered by blood, and buried in the ground, this seed of Christ will burst forth from the tomb. The vine of the living Christ will blossom and grow branches in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the very ends of the earth. Outsiders will be grafted in, and there will be neither Jew nor Gentile, male or female, slave or free. The seed of the gospel will be entrusted to us to sow. And abiding in the vine, the fruit of the Spirit will be ours to cultivate and share until one day the renewal begun in Gethsemane will reach its conclusion when the story that begins in a garden ends in the garden city of a new Jerusalem. We are not there yet. We are not there yet. We live between these two gardens. And therefore, there will be days when we find ourselves back here in Gethsemane struggling to see. Struggling to see in the midst of the thorns and the thistles, the fields ravaged by the pestilence of addiction and flooded with the tears born of injustice, we will find it hard to believe that the harvest is coming. In those moments, when the darkness closes in and our doubts begin to overtake us, when our souls are overwhelmed to the point of death, let us pray like the one who goes before us. Not my will, but thy will be done. Let us continue to trust, to wait, and to anticipate the fruit of the harvest that will come because of the seed of salvation planted here, because of the kernel of wheat, the bread of life, Jesus Christ, that falls to the ground and dies so that we might live. Thanks be to God. Amen.